0: You get the lights, Todd? Yeah. Feel like I'm ready to getting ready to go into a football game or something, man? I'm like just like, "Hmm. That song just gets you going, doesn't it? Holy moly. Ugh. Oh. Well, people are complicated. Am I right? Yes, including each one of us, right? And I've become uh, just much more aware of that as the older I've gotten. As a teenager, uh, when I first came to Christ, I was painfully aware of some of my flaws at that point. I could have told you that I was kind of selfish and prideful and could have kind of a, a critical spirit, but I was probably also painfully unaware of the depth of those flaws. And probably also unaware of more flaws that other people would have put on my list for me, right? I knew I wasn't perfect, but if I'm honest, I probably uh, would tell you that I'd hope that I'd be a little bit farther along now after following Jesus for 30 years than I am. Uh, This journey of transforming my character into the character of Christ has had its fits and starts I've grown some for sure, but I'm not near as much like Christ as I hoped I'd be by now. And maybe some of you all can, can relate to those feelings. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking, yeah, Bob's not as far along as I thought he'd be, right? That's not what I'm talking about. But on my sabbatical, um, here in a couple weeks, I'm going to Chicago with my, my cousin, as we like to do every three to four years when U2 goes on tour, going to their concert at Soldier Field. And um, they're celebrating uh, an album they released 30 years ago, which is, you know, longer than some of you guys have been alive. But I was a senior in high school when the Joshua Tree came out. It touched my life deeply. So, um, but their last album that they just had, um, had a song that um, really resonated with me. And I want to just share a couple lines from it. It's called uh, Song for Someone. And the verse I connected with goes like this. Um, He says... I'm a long way from your hill at Calvary, and I'm a long way from where I was where I need to be. I'm a long way from the person that I was, but I've also got a ways to go. And um, I think that's true of all of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not. Um, we are all just uh, aware, just having this awareness of this reality um, I think it's important, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's important for us to have an awareness of that reality. If we're going to live in community with others as followers of Christ, that we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go, that should impact that we do, the way in which we do life with people, uh, the way in which we do it with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the way that we do it with the broken and fallen world around us. And so that's kind of what I want to dive into today. <clears throat> And I've had some recent experiences that have kind of brought some of these thoughts for today's message kind of to the surface. Some of you know that I was a, a history major in college, and I, I taught history to a bunch of ungrateful middle schoolers for seven years. Um, took, took a few years off my life. But um, I also love to read. And so I, I, I've studied a lot of historical figures um, and I love to just look at the choices that people make and see the, the ways in which those choices have impacted their life and those around them, and just the complexity of the people that I've studied. So, as I mentioned last Sunday, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Sam and Stephanie and I traveled to Nashville uh, to go to uh, a conference on orphan care. And we got there on a Wednesday, about midday, and the conference didn't start till Thursday, so we had this afternoon. And so I coaxed him into going to the home of Andrew Jackson, because I'd never been. So how many of you have been to the Hermitage in Nashville? Anyone? Yes, Brent. Thank you. Okay. You know, you see him on a $20 bill. That's Andrew Jackson. He was our seventh president uh, of the United States. And so we went to his home, which is up here, too, the Hermitage. It's just huge. It's unbelievable. So it was a fascinating experience. We toured the grounds, went inside the house, and um, as I like to do, after something like that, we got back in the car and we're driving away, and I just said, hey, if you guys had to just sum up that experience into like one sentence or one thought, what are you going to take away from that? And for me, it was... You know, when you look at his life, and I'm going to share with you in a minute, it's just what, what I walked away with is just the good and the bad that's wrapped up in each one of us. You know, just the complexity and the unbelievable potential for good and bad that each of us has. So Andrew Jackson was a complicated guy. On, on one hand, he was a hero of the War of 1812, if you don't know much about that, kind of the last battle of that war was the Battle of New Orleans, and he was like the general leading the charge. And so he kind of helped end that war, and so he became really, um, you know, his notoriety across the United States really grew at the end of that time, to the point where later on he was elected president in 1828, and he was known as the People's President. And for one, he was the first president that wasn't a part of kind of the East Coast, highly educated aristocracy. He was kind of a common man, and people really saw him that way. And he had grown up pretty poor. His dad died before he was born. His mom passed away when he was 14. His two older brothers both died in the Revolutionary War. So he was literally an orphan by the time he was 14 years old and was brought up by some relatives. Um, And so he had um, this... Everything that he had done in life, he just kind of made his own way. He, he hadn't been handed much in life, and so people were drawn to that. Um, he and his wife also adopted in some family members, uh, kids, they had passed, the parents had passed away and they took them in. They also raised a couple of Native American boys, which is gonna seem really weird in just a moment. Um, but that's kind of some of the parts of the good side of this man. But then as you're walking around his plantation, um, and studied his life more, you were you know, very much in tune with the dark side of this guy. As his business ventures grew and he, he settled in the Nashville area, he bought this, what became a plantation, and became significantly wealthy, um, became a, a cotton grower, and so he, he ended up buying about 150 slaves. So there's that piece that's in the mix here. He was also known as the president who treated Native Americans extremely harshly. He signed in 1830 the Indian Removal Act, which was what relocated several tribes from the southeast United States to the Oklahoma Territory, what we now know as the Trail of Tears because of so many um, Indians that lost, uh, Native Americans that lost their lives on that journey. So a little crash course in American history for you guys this morning. So there's a dark side to this guy for sure. He was a complex person to kind of try to wrap your arms around, and he was... Kind of a study in duplicity. So that was one piece of that journey that I was just kind of thinking about this stuff. While we were in Nashville, at the same time, I was also finishing up a book on another president. And at this point, you're probably thinking, this guy needs to get a life. (laughs) But I was studying this book on James Garfield, probably one of your top three or four favorite presidents, right? Probably somebody you haven't really heard of much because he was shot like three months after he was elected and died about three months later from complications from those wounds. So he was only in office about six months. I didn't know much about him, but I was reading this book and he was a really just compelling guy. Um, Again, he, um, like Jackson's father, died when he was young, so his mom and older brother kinda scrabbled together some money to educate James so he could go to school, and he really rose through the ranks. through his education, he was just a brilliant guy, and he also was kind of a, uh, kind of got lucky and won a battle in the Civil War as a leader, and um, so he ends up, and you're just reading his story, and you're like, man, this guy has tremendous integrity, you know, he's, um, he's a family man, he loves his wife and kids, and he's a, a devoted follower of Christ, he's a public servant, and then you get to this point in the book, I'm reading along, and um, he gets elected a senator from Ohio, and he's living in Washington, D.C., so kind of away from his family. And he has an affair. And I just remember just in that book, I'm just like, what? (laughs) Like it was just, everything was rolling so well here, you know. And then all of a sudden there's just this episode in his life that just is so out of character for him. And it was something that as he wrote in his journals um, that he just deeply regretted for the rest of his life. And I'm sure many of us have had those experiences in life where we found ourselves doing something or at the very least thinking something that we never thought that we would do or think. And we wonder, like, how did my heart and mind get to a place where I was willing to do or think that? How did I get that far off? I'm not sure if you've read this book called The Bible, but there are some really complex people in here, if you haven't studied folks much. Extremely complex. Some of the heroes of the faith are some of the ones that made the most horrendous decisions at the weirdest times that you'll ever see. It caused unbelievable damage to their relationship with God and with the people that they loved. And I could go through a long list of examples here, from Abraham to Jacob to Moses to Peter to Paul. But I am going to talk a little bit this morning because I don't think there is maybe more of an interesting study in contradiction than King David in the Old Testament. So when God chose David to be the next king of Israel, there was already a king named Saul. Um, but God wasn't very happy with him, so he already was picking out the next guy. And, and David was the youngest of eight sons, the least likely in that family probably to be chosen. He was a shepherd. He was kind of too weak and young and frail to go out and be fighting on the front lines with his brothers in battle. But that's who God picks. And look at what Luke wrote about David in Acts 13, verse 22 It says, after removing Saul, he made David the king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Well, in the beginning of the story, that was certainly true, right? I mean, he gets out of the gate really well, right? He slays the giant Goliath. But then Saul is still king, so David, even though he's been promised you're going to be the next king, he has to serve under the current king, who's extremely jealous of David and all of his military accomplishments and kind of treats him horribly, tries to kill him on several uh, occasions. But David just serves this guy faithfully, humbly, uh, with respect, which is a huge lesson um, in, in having to be underneath somebody's leadership that you don't appreciate, and when he becomes king, he brings the ark to Jerusalem and establishes that as kind of this world-renowned city and really raises Israel to a world power. And things are going really well. And all the while, he's writing what we now know as many of the Psalms, and he just has this unbelievable relationship with God and worshiping him. And just when you think you couldn't love David more, his life kind of goes off the rails and he makes a series of just kind of head-scratching decisions. You're like, what is he doing? So I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's page 283. 2 Samuel 11. We're gonna take a look at verses one through five. Page 283. It says, in the spring, at the time where kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Uh oh. <laughs> That's certainly a change in events for David's life, right? And you just have to stop when you're reading this story and just be like, how did he get there? How did it come to that? And and so it, it just continues to go downhill from there because David sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come home from the battlefield hoping that he would sleep with his wife and think that the kid was actually his. But Uriah is too... Uh, has too much integrity, and he's like, I'm not gonna allow myself to do that. Well, my men are out there suffering in the battlefield away from their family, so he doesn't sleep with his wife. And so now David gets really desperate, and he hatches this plan to, to move Uriah up to the front lines of the battlefield. And when the firing is the heaviest, he says to his commander, I want everybody to withdraw and kind of leave him out there by himself. And sure enough, he ends up dying. So he's, he's kind of guilty for, for the murder of Uriah as well. The man after God's own heart is doing all of this. He's in a dark, dark place and digging himself into a deeper hole. So I want you to flip over to chapter 12. And God sends this prophet named Nathan to David. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And strangely enough... That reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. So watch this clip. So this was David's, you're bald moment, right? David was blind to his own sin and quick to condemn other people. And we can be painfully aware sometimes of the flaws of other people, right? So much so that we kind of actually enjoy pointing out how messed up they are, while at the same time, we can completely overlook or downplay our own sin, right, right? Have you ever noticed that the people that tend to frustrate and irritate you the most are the people that are most like you? I mean, the people that I just, oh, get my blood boiling is people, other people who are prideful, like me. And like, if there's another prideful person, you know, in my mix, it's just like, oh man, that guy irritates me. He's kind of arrogant, you know? Thinks he knows what's up. And uh, But here's something else that I've also noticed about a lot of people that I struggle with is that almost all of them have some kind of redeeming quality. They've got some really good things in their life that I can't ignore, so I can't just lump them into this category of just completely horrible people, which really frustrates me, you know, because I'd like to do that. Just like I hope when people look at Bob and they think, well, he's kind of intense and, and a little bit critical and demanding at times, but he is a pastor. I mean, he did adopt that kid from Africa, so he must be... Must be all right at some level. It's in there somewhere. But Jesus knew that we were all hopelessly flawed. And he understood the tension that exists in every one of our hearts between the people that we want to be and the people that we often are because of sin. Right? And he also knew that we'd be quick to judge other people while minimizing our own problems. And so he had some important things to say about that. I want you to turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 7, page 881. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. So what comes to mind for you when you read that passage? I mean, Jesus is being intentionally exaggerating here, right? He's trying to point out how ridiculous this is. What comes to mind for you? Anything jump out? Yeah, Randy? Yeah, if I'm tending your garden, who's tending my garden? That's good. You can imagine if you can like actually picture the scene with somebody like with the big plank sticking out of their eyeball. You know, me going up to Justin's like, I think there's a speck in your eye. Let me get that. You know, <laughs> and you're like just blind to the fact that you've got this massive plank sticking out there, knocking people out of the way as you're trying to worry about what everybody else's problems are. Right. Does he say to ignore the speck in your brother's eye? Look at it. No, he doesn't say ignore it. He just says maybe like put first things first, right? Jesus is talking about a posture here. He's talking about a posture of humility where we recognize our own junk and our own need for forgiveness and mercy. Because when we have a critical or judgmental spirit towards others, Jesus wants to look at us and say, you're bald. Oh, but man, I mean, this guy can be such a jerk sometimes. You can be a jerk sometimes. Yeah, but she just, she gossips and just talks about other people. You talk about other people, right? I mean, it's just like, stop being so ridiculous. You do all the things that frustrate you about other people. And we all need Jesus so desperately, don't we? I think the older I get, the more and more like the reality of that truth becomes. It's like I desperately need Christ. I am way more flawed than I ever thought. And one of the things that I'm so much more aware of now, the older I've gotten too, is just how deceitful my motives are. I mean, there's not a time that I'm not working some angle. Right to make myself look better than I really am, or to 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 get what I want uh, out of a situation, and you know, just kind of set things up so that so that people will will do things I want or to be noticed by other folks. It, it's really kind of disgusting at times, honestly. Remember when the woman uh, caught in adultery is brought before the crowd and before Jesus in John chapter eight, and she's literally hauled out of the bedroom and, and brought before him? And the Old Testament law was that if there was somebody caught in adultery, that that they would be stoned to death. And so even as Jesus is kind of sitting there, kind of contemplating what to do, the crowd reaches down and picks up a rock, and they're smelling blood. They're ready. And one of those famous lines in the Bible that most people know, right? Jesus says, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. And then I love what it says after that. It says that this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Why did the older ones leave first? What's that? They knew, they sin. They knew what? They sin. Yeah, they knew they weren't without sin. I don't know if that just, you know, comes from just being a little bit older, a little bit wiser, what it is. I think when we're young, we, we can think pretty highly of ourselves. Um, but man, there was something learned from age there. I love this quote by Theodore Roosevelt. He said, if you kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. Man, we love to think it's somebody else's fault for the mess we've gotten ourselves into. We we, we have this unbelievable victim mentality a lot of times. Guys, we are all works in progress, and we're going to continue to be works in progress until we take our very last breath. And it's why we need Jesus so much and why he asks us to, to extend grace and patience and understanding towards other people. Like, like Randy said, another version of that is, is, you know, worry about sweeping your own side of the street and not on how much your neighbor's sidewalk is so messy, right? Focus on you. Because I can tell you this, all of us. All of us have our days or weeks or months where we are just not at our best for whatever reason. And sometimes we just need to believe the best about people and just let some things go and just let people have some bad days and give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't have to correct every flaw. Sometimes we just need to let people have some bad days. Sometimes make some bad comments. And not be so easily offended all the time. Just like we appreciate the fact that God doesn't drag us out into the spotlight for every offense that we have throughout the day. Can you imagine what that would look like? Every sinful thought or action that you had if God said, all right, time out. Let's bring him out here in the spotlight and let's remind him what a moron he is. Again, you're in time out again, Bob, just like yesterday for the 12th time today, right? We're so grateful that God doesn't do that to us. (laughs) Yet we really get a lot of pleasure sometimes out of bringing the other people in the spotlight and saying, look at how horrible you are. Can't believe you said that to me. What? You know, just to make sure they know how flawed they are. I love this reminder in Psalm 32, It says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Aren't you just grateful that a lot of your junk has just been covered and forgiven? So how do we check our hearts and treat people in gracious ways? Well, I think it begins by, with just an acknowledgement that we're just all really complex people. And we're capable of unbelievable acts of kindness and then some just head-scratching stupidity all within a few moments of each other at times, right? In the same hour, same conversation, we can be brilliant and idiotic, Right? I love it when I'm counseling people sometimes and things are going so well. And then one of them says something so stupid. I'm just like, oh, don't say that. Take it back. Can I get an amen? amen. Holy cow from my counselor friend up here. I'm just like, don't do that. We were everything was going so well. Uh, we need to recognize that every one of us is capable of any sin and that we are all in equal need of God's grace. There's never a time like where we're up here a little bit more holy than other people. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all in equal need. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I think we need to check ourselves and ask what are my motives for correcting another person? And I think we need to use Galatians 6.1 as a guide. It says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So I think we need to think about it. When I feel like I need to say something to somebody, <laughs> which is fine, we need to do that at times, is my heart, is my attitude, am I going into this thinking, I want to restore this person gently? Because restoration is a process, and it implies a relationship with you and the other person, a partnership, walking with them as they acknowledge, hopefully, and battle their sin. Because it's really easy to just point out the flaws in other people. It's a whole different thing to say, you know what, I want to walk with you and help you in this restorative process. I want to help you be the person that I know you want to be and that God wants you to be. It's a different level of commitment. And so maybe next time when you're thinking I'm out to say something, you ought to ask yourself, am I invested in this relationship enough that where I'm going to walk with this person towards that? If all you want to do is just give them the zinger and get out, then you probably shouldn't say it. Last thing, really quickly, just on your program or uh, offering card for all I care, whatever. A piece of paper on your phone, whatever you want to do. <laughs> this reminds me of Michael Scott moment in the office, right? Where he's talking to that college class and he's like, you know, the world can't live without paper, you know, write that down and everybody types it in their computer. <laughs> Anyways. So really quickly I want you to do this. Write down three of your own character flaws that you're acutely aware of. Write down three of your own character flaws that you are acutely aware of, or type them in your phone. If you're not done by now, there's something wrong with you. Now we're going to see if your last list matches the list that I have for you, okay? So we'll just start right here with summer. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it's pretty easy, isn't it? I mean, at least it was for me. It's pretty easy to notice the, the flaws. It's really easy to do that in the lives of others. To, to think about, you know, somebody else you know and say, I can, I can give you three flaws for that guy. How much time you got, right? Five seconds, here I go. It's easy to notice where we're broken. But the greater and more effective work is to call the good out of one another. To call out their true nature, right? As followers of Christ, the perfect Christ that's in each one of us to call out and inspire them to be who they truly are. You know, Paul was so good at that. You know, here was this guy who in his former life was a murderer of Christians. He was a persecutor of the church. He tried to stamp out the Jesus followers. And then God got a hold of his heart and transformed him, and he became a Christian, and he went around and told people the gospel and built these churches up, and when he would write his letters... Even though he knew who he used to be and what he was capable of, which was murder, he would start his letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then speaking to his young, you know, pretty flawed young converts, he would say to the saints in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Corinth, constantly calling people up to their true identity. And so my challenge for us, before I head out for six weeks of hedonism and glee, (laughs) two words you might not find in a sentence in your lifetime again, is that may we be a people aware of our own need for Christ, gracious to others, slow to condemn quick to encourage, and willing to rest to, to invest in the restoration process of other people. As we come to the communion table, one of the reasons why at Wellspring that we kind of start with a, a full loaf is that it reminds us that we are part of one body and all kind of in equal need of God's grace and so that's what I want your reminder to be today and I just want you to take a day at a time I saw it's always interesting when you're the person up here and you get to see what everybody's doing while you're saying all these things and you know some people are kind of squirming around some people are nudging the other person yeah you really need to hear this some people are making their own confession oh I'm really sorry that's the way I am right did you send a pastor the video of me doing that this week so I see that. I know that God is speaking to you guys. It's challenging stuff, and we know that we're guilty of it a lot. And I just want to challenge you to just take one day at a time. You know, just today, try to be more gracious. Today, when your spouse or friend or sibling or whatever says something that just hits you the wrong way, just be like, you know what? Maybe they're just having a bad day. Like I have a lot of bad days. And I can, I'm just going to let that one go right? Like, Jesus lets a lot of my stuff go. So, as we head into our time of communion this morning, um, I'm going to give you some time of silence. Our ushers will dismiss you. There's also a gluten-free option on the far uh, side there if you need that as well, um, and they'll dismiss you, and uh, you can come up a row at a time and, and take communion and head back to your seats, and we'll finish up our service. So, just join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, Man, just for how patient you are with each one of us, Lord, we see it in ourselves and definitely in other people, the, the battle between our flesh and our spirit, as Paul talks about just this war that goes on in us between the people that we know we are and the people that we want to be and the people that we sometimes are in our flesh and our sin. And God, we want to be more like your son Um, But Lord, we need you, and so our our flaws remind us of our great need, and so we're grateful for our weaknesses, because it it just continually keeps us close to you, knowing that, that we need your covering, we need your forgiveness. And Lord, as much as we want that from you, sometimes we can be so chintzy at extending that to other people. And so I pray, God, that you would help us just to be more gracious, more forgiving, more patient people. God, that we would just kind of take some deep breaths sometimes and just be like, man, I don't know what's going on with them today, but Lord, they, they are obviously hurting or just frustrated in some way. And let me just, let me just be a blessing to them today, even though maybe they've hit me wrong with something, and that we could just be examples of Christ to other people. Lord, I just pray that you would just continue to speak to us as we just create some space for just quietness right now.